Collective Awakening podcast, sharing truth and knowledge in this time of conscious awakening with Chris and Stephen. Welcome to the Collective Awakening podcast. I've been um, trusted by my good friend Chris to introduce our um, podcast. Uh, this morning, this afternoon, this evening, wherever you're listening. My name is Stephen and my co-host there next to me is Chris. We welcome you to this amazing podcast and I'd like to welcome our guest today, Mr. Stephen Greer, writer, lecturer, academic and spiritual medium. Thank you very much for coming on to our podcast today, Stephen. Welcome. Thanks, Stephen. And thank you both for asking me on. It's an honour. I'm glad to be here. Amazing. Thank you, Stephen. And what we always like to start off with is a little bit about who you are, um, a little bit about some yeah. of the work that you're doing at this moment in time, and then we'll just take it from there. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, who am I? Very good question. It's one I've been asking myself for years. I'm still not sure I've got the answer. Um I have a complicated backstory. I am an academic of quite long standing. Um, I have done a PhD in chemical engineering and a master's in analytical chemistry um, in the past. So I have a very scientific mind, but my uh, first love was always classical music and ballet going back into my childhood. And so I've always had those two two strands going on in my life. Um, And on top of that, I always had mediumistic experiences going back to when I was very small. Um, My first conscious mediumistic experience was when I was about three years old. And uh, I remember a, a beautiful kind young female voice talking to me out of the middle of the room when there was no one else in there and my adoptive parents were nowhere near me so uh, it was definitely not any uh, either of them and certainly not my adoptive mother whose voice was totally different to that um and i've had mediumistic experiences both clairaudient as it's referred to where you hear and clairvoyant where you see um ever since i was that age um albeit i didn't actually start using it as um, a proper thing in terms of being a medium until about eight or nine years ago um when i was living down in somerset and i started uh, sort of using it then the other odd thing about me or at least it's odd in the context that um not many people have this is that i was born with memories of my four most recent past lives intact so i came in with um memories of my past existences who i was and where i'd been going all the way back to the eighties was perfectly normal <laughs> you know when i was a kid i thought everybody was like that and it shocked mm. me when i was telling um some people at a birthday Day party when I was about six, I think, um, of some memories that I had, uh, very distinct memories of 
snow mountain and uh, my adoptive mother dragged me out of the party and sort of started about telling lies to people and I said I'm not telling lies I said I'm telling people what I remember and she had absolutely no comprehension of what I was talking about her her background was very um conventional methodist if you know what i mean so she had absolutely no idea what i was talking about at the time so very quickly i learned to not suppress the memories because they've always been with me but suppress talking about them to people because i realized quite a lot of people out there in the world would think it rather strange if I suddenly started talking about what it was like in Berlin in 1936, for example, um, you know, uh, which is something I distinctly remember. So it's it, it's an odd one. I have all of those things going on in my background, but I think the, the strongest thing is this duality in me between the classical musician on the one side and the scientist uh, on the other, with the medium, I suppose, being being part of the musician. But I actually don't see it as being, any of them as being separate from the others. Mm. Um, True. I actually True. see science, uh, music, mediumship, they're all part of the same, for, to me anyway, they're, and the way I've lived my life, they're all part of the same uh, mix. And I utilise all of those different skills in the work that I do. So as a writer, for example, and I was quite fascinated to see that Dickens had almost the same thing going on as me. And that is that when I write, I see my characters moving and talking and they're real people to me. And they do real things and they do strange things and they don't do things that I control, if you know what I mean, which is part of the fun of writing is that I don't know what my characters are going to do or where they're going to go or, or anything to do with that. And I've always, since I became aware of this properly, I've always thought of it as a sort of mediumistic way of, of doing things. And I feel that real, uh, you know, writers, composers, dancers, they're all mediumistic. They just don't realize that they are and they don't talk about it in those terms. But in fact, that's exactly what they're doing. And um, composers in particular, if I think about the way Mozart, for example, described how he composed in Letters to His Father, um, it's very interesting looking at the way he described composition almost in the terms I've just described writing a book. Um, he would, for example, um, hear melodies in his head and he would be able to see what to do with them straight away. It would just be there and he would write down what he was seeing, what he was hearing, what he was, you know, in, in terms like that. So uh, th that's how I've always worked. I mean, even when I was doing my PhD, for instance, in, in chemical engineering, I was given a, a brief uh, from the Ministry of Defence to do uh, to produce a new kind of paint, um, which wasn't lead-based because lead-based paint was regarded at that time as being poisonous. Mm. So we had to develop a new kind of paint for military vehicles. And I had to devise a series of tests for the new paint to make sure that the paint was working in different environments. 
dams like for example anywhere near the sea like oil pipelines you know boat and um so what I would use, what I would do quite often is I would see in my head, oh, I need to go here or I need to do this experiment or I need to do that experiment like that. And I could almost tell you from the start what the results were going to be of the experiment before I'd even done it. Um, and I didn't realize until much later on that in that sense, even there, I was using sort of almost mediumistic skills. But when I started looking at the uh, writings and the sayings of, uh, of Albert Einstein, for example, I realized he had very similar things going on in his mind when he was doing his mathematics and physics to the way I was working in chemical engineering. There, there wasn't a lot of difference between the way he was dealing with his scientific studies and the way I was dealing with mine. So I, I've always been that way inclined. Wow, Stephen, very, very interesting. And uh, particularly the past lives side of things, which is a lot of people are sort of yeah. getting into now or an awakening to that. But um, I, I love to sort of approach uh, the, the vibrational yeah. side, the music side, uh, about the how the music's being yeah. manipulated. And it would be great sort of share that story and how oh, you yes. got into that and how we need to change that. Because, you know, music's a massive part oh, yeah. of everybody's lives, isn't it? Everybody relates to music in mm. some way. And I find this going to be very, very interesting for people. Well, it's it's what you were just saying, really. It's about vibration. And you realise when you start to study it that everything is about vibration. It's, it's not just music. It's everything else um, around you as well. And I, I just tell a, a little sort of joke, really, to sort of begin what I'm talking about with this. And that's um, a horror movie director that I saw once was talking about his brand new slasher horror movie. And he was saying in the, in the most um, sort of grandiose terms how he was really inspired to do the work that he'd done on this amazing slasher horror movie. And I'm sat there watching it, shaking my head, going, yeah, you were inspired, but from where? That's what I want to know. <laughs> from, from what level were you inspired to do that? I mean, obviously you were, you know, but it, it's it's not about the, it is about inspiration because what I was talking about before in terms of the way I kind of worked, even when I was a scientist, it, it it was about being open-minded, open to what I was doing, tuning into what I was doing, and then seeing, and that's in inverted commas, because it's a sort of clairvoyant seeing, really, in some ways, allied to your scientific technique, because it's, it's not just... Um, it's not just a clairvoyant thing where you're you're not involving what you've learned. You're actually using what you've learned as well. It's part of it. Um, so it's about the level that you tune into. Now, this goes to music because, as we all know, and as I'm sure various, <clears throat> um, got to be careful what I say now, various nefarious types also know that music influences mood if you put a certain kind of music on 
you can very quickly influence the mood of a group of people, uh, an audience, if you like. Now, recently, and it, it will be interesting to for you to know, um, Classic FM flagged this up a few days ago, actually, that uh, there's recently been a scientific study done of the way in which certain kinds of music influence the breathing and heart rates of audiences yeah. when, they're, when they're listening to them. So go to the Classic FM website. You'll find the, the link there to the scientific study that's recently been done regarding heart rates and breathing rates of audiences. But this goes to the question, what are you going to give them? What are you going to give the audience? Um, and the wider question of where the music is coming from, which takes me back to my horror movie joke, which is, yeah, the, the director was inspired, but from what level? And you have to look at this objectively. And it's very difficult to do that because music, like a lot of other things, including horror movies, is a very subjective matter. And that's the problem. You, If you're going to sort this out properly, you have to take your subjective self out of it for a minute and start looking at things more objectively. So just to talk about the way music can be manipulated, if you like, one of the most obvious things to talk about would be the way totalitarian regimes in the past used um music to manipulate the masses in terms of their mood in terms of uh what the regime wanted them to think about and one of the classic um composers to look at where that's concerned and in fact groups of composers is composers in soviet russia between 1917 and 1991 uh, most particularly between 1928 and 1953, which is the years that Stalin was in power. Now, if you look at the a lot of the music that the regime wanted composers to write during that period, it was very propaganda-based. Mm -hmm. The regime had a particular narrative that they wanted the people to go along with. And composers, because classical music in Russia was and still is today a, a, a very mass market thing. I mean, you wouldn't believe the audiences classical music gets in Russia. They're massive, you know, compared to audiences in, in the West. Yeah. Um, so the Soviet regime, the Russian regime knew fine well just what it was possible to do if they got their composers to follow what they wanted them to do. And then you had... Um, the dilemma that a composer would face at that point, which is, do I do what the regime is telling me to do and produce the latest propaganda piece? Or do I tell the truth about what is really happening in this country at this point and how horrible it is and how the Black Mariahs are coming along every 10 minutes and taking away people, you know, to who knows where? Um, you know, what do I do? And the classic composer to look at in, in those com conditions is Shostakovich, because he faced those problems head on. And what he managed to do, um, I, I always think being a Libran, which he was, it, it's not a surprise. He actually managed to walk the line between the two things, 
So he managed to write music on one level that the regime liked. And so he got away with it, although he did have sometimes huge trouble with them at the same time. But at the same time, he also managed to write music that the people who were going through the horrors would understand there was someone who was with them through it all, a brother, someone who was going through it with them. And that was very, very important. The compassion of a composer like Shostakovich is very, very important because when you're going through horrors, it's not always a good thing to be given a very sunny piece of music because that may not be how you're feeling. You may be wanting someone to witness what you're going through, to witness your pain, to witness mm. the awfulness of what you're going through. And so for someone like Shostakovich to be able to come along and say, look, I'm here with you is incredibly important. And I think in, in, in those terms, I think Shostakovich's music saved an awful lot of lives during the period of greatest darkness in, in Soviet Russia. But to go back to what I was saying before about what level are you getting the inspiration from, my own observation is that the music comes through this is certainly in classical music, my own field. Music essentially comes through first and foremost as a melody. When a composition begins, say I'm thinking about, I'll give you an example from my own compositional uh, area. I'm currently writing a string quartet, which is in the key of D major. Um, and I'll just say sort of semi-humorously that for me to come along in the year 2023, and write a string quartet in the key of D is uh, something that certain people in the classical music field won't like at all. Um, but I, I'll get into that in a bit. Um, the piece is actually based on a melody that I heard complete when I was walking through the grounds of Glastonbury Abbey in 2016. The melody that is the basis of the D major quartet was suddenly there in my head when I was walking through the apple orchards. Actually, if you really want to know exactly where it was, it was the apple orchards, which are just slightly to the right-hand side of the ruins of the abbey. And that wasn't the first time I'd heard music in the grounds of the abbey. Um, I've actually heard music in the grounds of the abbey many times before. Quite often when I've actually been in the ruins themselves um i've actually heard gregorian chant or singing which might be similar to uh, the masses of the era of elizabeth the first things like that and i've sometimes wondered whether the music i've heard there is either an echo of what was sung there in the 15th or 16th centuries or it was possibly because of the way the place is with it being attuned to the divine whether because you are there in that setting then it predisposes you to be able to hear music of that kind more clearly um it, it's it's probably knowing knowing the way things are it's probably a bit of both i should think um but that's an example and beethoven of course had the example of hearing the melodies that became his pastoral symphony his symphony number no. six in f uh, when he was walking in the Vienna woods. So he heard those melodies that became 
the pastoral symphony in, in the Vienna woods. So contact with nature brings you, and it's a, I know it's a, a, a 19th century romantic notion, but it's a timeless notion, really. It, it brings you, that contact with nature brings you, if you're attuned to it, and if you are a composer, it brings you the, the melody directly. Um, and then, you know, the music with the technique that you learn as a composer, the, the music just unfolds from there. The, the melody is the basis of the composition. Um, so composers throughout history have heard music and written down what they've heard using their learned techniques as, as composers. But in the 20th century, something started to change. Now, this is partly because um, of the way art was changing and the way in which human thought was changing. Um, there was a movement in uh, the German-speaking countries called Expressionism, which began in the yeah. early years of the 20th century. And part of Expressionism was bringing out the darker side of human emotion and the more horrific side of human emotion. Now, I'm not against that. In fact, I feel, in, like I was saying before about Shostakovich, there are times when you need to acknowledge that certain emotions are true and certain emotions are there. Uh, it's part of shadow work. And one of the things I do know from personal experience and personal experience of other people is that you ignore the shadow, your own shadow in particular, at your peril. So the first way to heal the shadow is to acknowledge that it's there and to acknowledge not only that it's there, but acknowledge what it wants to say. And this is, it was one of the, of the good things, if you like, about expressionism was that it brought that out. But the problem became that the emotions that were being expressed through the music uh, that was coming through the expressionist composers in Germany and Austria in the early part of the 20th century was so extreme that the melody and harmony of the music broke down completely so that the music became incredibly discordant and incredibly harsh to listen to. And trust me when I tell you that a number of the expressionist pieces that were written in the early years of the 20th century are very hard to take um, in terms of listening. You would not listen to these pieces to relax. Trust me, you wouldn't. Um, and in point of fact, exposure to that kind of music over a long period of time, I think, um, can have quite negative effects on your health if you're not careful. So it's good to get it out. It's good to acknowledge that it's there. But then a healing needs to happen. Something else needs to happen. Now, the problem with what happened with the beginning of the Expressionist era there are two concerts, and I think I mentioned this to either Chris or Stephen. I can't remember which one of you it was I was talking to. I think it was you, Stephen. Um, 
I mentioned two concerts that ha took place in 1913, the year before World War One. Uh, one of them was a, a concert that became famous called uh, the Schoenberg Concert. And it was uh, a series of uh, compositions by Arnold Schoenberg, who was one of the composers who was stretching tonality. And uh, he was part of the New Expressionist movement. And his pupils, Alban Berg and Anton Webern, who were also part of this movement. And the music, uh, it has to be, I have to, to give it context. In Vienna at the time, there were different factions, as there often are in, in art, um, between the Schoenberg camp, people who loved his work, and the people who hated his work. So, for example, if you put on a, a concert of Schoenberg's work, there would be a group of people who would turn up deliberately to cause trouble at the concert because they didn't like his pieces. And so, in fact, that's part of what happened. An anti-Schoenberg group turned up at the concert. And during the performance of Albenberg's Altenberg leader, um, they suddenly decided to start whistling. They brought large house keys to whistle through, amongst other things. And they started whistling through their house keys and then uh, starting a riot but it was also the music itself, the character of the music itself that partly also caused the riot. It was because the music itself, I think, was so horrifically discordant that it kind of engaged the emotions of the people who were in the audience negatively. So it wasn't just that there were people there who were there deliberately to oppose the, the pieces it was actually partly also the character of the music itself and it started a riot and it started violence and it spilled out onto the streets of Vienna and people were injured and there were lots of arrests and the other famous one of course is the first performance of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring in Paris also in 1913 and that also caused a riot um, a, a very famous scandal a riot lots of violence lots of arrests um not exactly the most restful piece of music to listen to. Um, so this was the beginning of, of the change in, in music in the early years of the 20th century. Um, after 1913, there was a, a bit of a gap until about 1924 when Schoenberg came out with his, um, <clears throat> I've got to try and get this right, method of composing with 12 tones, which are only related to one another. And that's the correct way of saying it. Um, the whole point of that method of composing with the 12 tones is that you've moved from the seven notes of the diatonic scale to the 12 of the chromatic scale. And so, in other words, in the seven notes, you have a key. So A major, B flat major, C major, D major, etc. With the 12 notes, you don't, uh, or at least what you can get sometimes is you can get what's called a tonal center where instead of say a major or b flat major you get a tonal center of either a or b flat which is concentrated on briefly before you move away from it to something else so the the tonality of 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 a, a piece of music using the 12 notes is a lot more fluid 
um, potentially a lot more fluid. But the thing that Schoenberg did was he actually deliberately ignored tonal centers in his method of composing with 12 tones. So in other words, there is no tonal center at all in the works that he was uh, writing after 1924, albeit he tried to convince everybody, including himself, that he was still related to the German masters of the past by trying to use musical forms like sonata and symphony, for example, that the older composers had used. And he was still trying to use those forms, but using them with his new technique. The problem with 12-tone technique is that it emphasizes, it, it weirdly emphasizes tonality by openly ignoring it if that makes sense. It, it mm -hmm. means that you're even more aware of the fact that there should be a tonal centre because of the fact that there actually is no tonal centre at all. Um, so in, in a way, he was trying to avoid tonality completely and in a way re-emphasised it by avoiding it, which is <laughs> weird but true. Um, now, the issue with this is that when the Nazis? Oh dear, I can't say that word on. In of course, you can. Um, when the Nazis came along in 1933, also think about the totalitarian regime in Russia that I've just talked about as well. You can imagine that music that cannot be used to manipulate the masses which tonal music can be used to manipulate the masses with marches and marching songs and propaganda songs and, you know, all this sort of thing. 12-tone music, which completely avoids tunes, melodies completely, you can't use that to manipulate the masses. So your average totalitarian regime is not going to like atonal or 12-tone music at all. So what happened was composers like Schoenberg and his pupils were banned eventually in Nazi Germany and anyone who followed their methods was also proscribed or arrested or you know and that gave them a certain cachet if you understand what I mean particularly after the war because after the war what happened was the, this, is, this is the twisted logic that we're dealing with. After the war, here's the logic of it. Totalitarian regimes promote melodies, promote harmonies, promote beautiful music, right? Totalitarian regimes do that. Therefore, that's bad, right? The music that totalitarian regimes banned, the atonal I'm talking in broad terms now, the atonal tuneless music that the totalitarian regimes banned, that is now good. And that is where we want music to go post-World War II. So post-World War II eventually took quite a while, but eventually any composer who writes conventional melodies, conventional harmonies, etc eventually doesn't have a career because the music that is wanted to be promoted in classical music terms after the second world war ends up being the tuneless atonal 12 tone variety and eventually the bbc weighed in 
on that in the early 1960s. There was a director of the BBC, a BBC music called William Glock, and he wanted to promote this kind of music. Um, and it's also quite interesting if you look at the history of the way in which they brought 12-tone music back into Germany after the Second World War. I won't name names, but it's to do with certain three-letter agencies in the United States who put a lot of money into the regeneration of German culture after World War II. And in order to regenerate German culture, German musical culture, it was Schoenberg and his pupils who'd been banned and prescribed by the Nazis who were brought back in as the saviors of, of German music. And that was then the basis on which, um, you know, the music of the future was supposed to be based on that. So if you were still, you know, a fan of Mozart or a fan of, of Brahms or a fan of, of Beethoven even, and you wanted to write music like that, and particularly if you were writing music like that from the 1960s and 70s onwards, you were described as old-fashioned, old hat, um, no one wants to hear this anymore. I mean, I was told when I in the 1970s when I was studying music, um, my favourite composers were Rachmaninoff, Richard Strauss, Mozart, uh, who's always been my big household god. I adore Mozart. Um, and the music I heard in my head was music like theirs. And that was what I wanted to write. And I was told in no uncertain terms that if you wrote music like that, you'd be laughed out of college, laughed out of university, and you wouldn't have a career. <laughs> and that's mm -hmm. why, in case you're wondering, a number of composers who had those kind of melodies going on in their heads, like, for example, John Williams, for instance, went into yeah. writing film music like Star Wars, Harry Potter. Film music essentially saved classical music. And this this is a, is a view that is now gaining quite a lot of traction. There are a number of academics now who are writing books about this, about how, in fact, the the composers who would have carried on writing symphonies and concertos and operas and ballets conventionally speaking in classical music after the second world war and weren't able to because of what was happening in classical music and the way it was being turned on its head actually went into writing film music instead because that was where their talents that was where their ability to hear melody could go did go and if you're interested, there's a composer called Eric Korngold. Um, now, I, I, I would strongly advise you to look up on YouTube. There are some great performances of Korngold's concert works on uh, on YouTube. Some terrific uh, performances. And Korngold is a magnificent example of what I'm talking about now, because he was born in 1897. He grew up in the Vienna of pre-World War I. And in fact, his first um, symphony, which weirdly he called Symphonietta, and it's not because it's a massive 50-minute romantic symphony, which he finished when he was 15 years old um, and was first performed in Vienna in 19, 1912, I think. Um, he uh, was 
the the golden boy of Vienna before the First World War. And he produced an opera called Die Tote Stadt, which is an absolutely magnificent romantic opera, uh, in 1920. And that was when he was just 23. He, he became really incredibly well-known very fast. But then when the Nazis came to power in the 30s, Korngold, of course, was Jewish. And he had to leave... Um, he had to leave Germany in a hurry. Korngold was the great hope of music in the years both before the First World War and in um, the years after World War One, going into the 1920s. By about the age of 25, he was a megastar in, in musical terms. Um, now, what happened when the Nazis came to power, of course, he was Jewish, so he had to leave in something of a hurry. Unfortunately, he'd been given a, a contract uh, by a, a, a theatre director that he'd worked with before, a chap called... Um, oh, dear. <laughs> I've just had a brain freeze moment. Um, a chap who directed a film called Midsummer Night's Dream in the States. Anyway... Uh, Korngold went to actually work with this director in the States on his invitation. And what then happened was Korngold started writing film music. Instead of writing operas and ballets, he started writing film music. And the kind of film music we have now from composers like John Williams, we owe to Korngold. He started that, that trend towards grand, romantic, melodic music in films but more than that what Korngold did was he had a contract with Warner Brothers which said that any of his film scores the melodies from his film scores he could use in his concert works if he wanted to so um, works like his violin concerto in D which he wrote in 1945 for Yasha Heifetz that piece comes out of at least two film scores uh, one of which is The Prince and the Pauper, and the other, I think, is The Loves of Elizabeth and Essex, I think is an, another one. Uh, and they were very well known. Korngold won Oscars for his film scores. But what he wanted to do was he wanted to communicate with his audiences. He wanted them to love what he was feeling, what he was doing. And so he put the melodies from the film scores into his concert work. So we've got the violin concerto in D. There's also the cello concerto in C major, which dates from 1946. And that comes from the movie Deception. And that's actually a concerto in the movie itself. But he extracted that um, and turned it into um, a, an actual concert work. And then after the war in 1947, I think it was 47 or 48, he wanted to go back to Germany again, to Austria, to see if he could restart his concert career over there. And of course, by the time he got back to Austria in 1947-48, the kind of stuff I was describing to you with the regeneration of German culture had already started, which meant that Korngold's romantic beautiful melodic work was not wanted there and he arrived thinking oh i'm home again i'm i'm going to i'm going to go home i'm you know i'm my career's going to be restarted and of course he found himself in a no man's land 
Nobody wanted to see him. Nobody wanted to talk to him. The The whole tenor of, of German and Austrian culture had completely changed. And it, it the whole thing upset him so much that he started to become seriously ill. And by 1950, uh, when he was only in his early 50s, he had a series of heart attacks and his symphony in F-sharp major, which was his the first of two that he wrote, the symphony in F-sharp was eventually finished in 1952. And that was given a run-through by Austrian radio in 1954. But to give you an idea, the run-through was terrible. He was given virtually no re rehearsal time. And so if you give a new piece to an orchestra, say, for example, you give Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5 to an orchestra that hasn't rehearsed it, they know, generally speaking, everybody knows Beethoven's Fifth. So you're not going to get a terrible performance. It's going to be it's going to be a bit edgy at times, but you're not going to get a terrible performance. But a work, a brand new piece like Korngold's Symphony in F Sharp that nobody's seen before, you put that in front of an orchestra without much rehearsal, it's going to sound dreadful. Because you, with a new work, you need time to give the work to the orchestra for the orchestra to settle in. They had no time. So the run-through with Austrian radio was terrible. And Korngold heard it and it was like, nah, I'm not letting that out. You know, that that's not happening. And then Korngold had a series of strokes while he was writing the symphony number two. And he died, unfortunately, at the age of 59 in 1957 and the symphony in f sharp major was not premiered properly until 1972 when the work was given its first recording now believe it or not that work which i became a big fan of in 1985 when a friend of mine lent me a tape of it because i've been desperately trying to find beautiful modern romantic works which communicated and I was I was always curious. My mind was always open. I was always looking for new pieces. And a friend of mine uh, lent me a tape of the first recording of the Symphony in F Sharp from 1972. And this was 1985. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe that in an age of avant-garde, horrible, no melody, discordant noise, which made you feel ill, all of a sudden, this gorgeous symphony which was like Mahler or Shostakovich, but more so, and was obviously of the modern age, if you know what I mean, but was beautiful in the extreme. I couldn't believe it. It made me cry. It still does. I, I, and I think the fact that that work had to wait until 1972, 15 years after the composer died, is a scandal. I think it's terrible. And the fact that audiences have been deprived of that kind of music for a long time and they've had the avant-garde basically shoved down their throats for the last 60 years because it was deemed to be part of, shall we say, an arrow of time theory. Now, the arrow of time theories is like linear time. It's also like the end of, end of history theories in politics. Um, like Lenin's idea about, oh, we've reached the end of history. We've now, you know, in, in the sunshine of socialism, you know, and we, we've reached the end of, and this was what Stalin was pushing in the 20s and 30s. Mm. And the arrow of time theory says that you keep on 
moving and changing and a new thing happens and a new thing happens and a new thing happens. And it's not true. Time ain't linear. Time is circular at best or spherical or three-dimensionally spherical. Time is nothing to do with linear at all. And this idea of the linear arrow of time theory was, was used to teach people that, oh, yes, well, we've moved on from the romantic era now. We're doing something else. We're doing the avant-garde now. We don't do this anymore. Because if you if we're doing... Uh, if we're doing this and you're doing romanticism, you're down here on the linear scale. Do you see what I mean? You're you're down over there. You're backwards in history. You're going backwards, and you shouldn't be. And it's not to do with uh, about being backwards. This goes back to my horror movie joke at the beginning. It's not about linear time because time isn't linear, and it's not about anything else other than the level, the emotional, the vibrational level you are tuned to. And the music you are tuned to comes from whatever vibrational level you are tuned to. Which takes me to um, the work of Rosemary Brown, the medium. Um, but I'll stop there for a minute because I'm feeling very emotional. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Stephen, yeah. Stephen, just I just want to just does that answer in, your question? I ran yeah. too much. Uh, no, 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 it's not. really... Um, Basically, what happened was classical music. I, I know I've heard Stephen use the term classical music a number of times. You've got to be careful using that term because classical music properly, if I'm to be pedantic about this, classical music properly means the period between 1750 and 1820. That's proper classical music. So we're looking at Mozart and his contemporaries. We're looking at early Beethoven or maybe mid-period Beethoven up to about 1812. That is classical music. After 1820, between 1820 and about 1900, 1910, we're looking at romantic era music. So we're looking at romantic music. And there's different periods of romanticism. We've got the early romantic period between about 1810 and about 1850 or 1860. Then we've got mid-period romanticism between about 1850, 1860 and about 1880, 1890. And then we've got late romantic music between about 1880, 1890 and 1920. It... it Roughly, romantic music roughly stops around the time of the First World War. So if you want a cutoff point where modern music begins properly, you're looking at the period around about the First World War. So between 1914 and 1920 is when is when things start to change. But the manipulation of music has been to try to convince composers that the kind of music that used to be written before modernism became a thing no longer exists or cannot be written anymore. And that's rubbish. Utter rubbish. Um, the music is there and it can be had if you tune into it.
if you tune into that particular level. Um, I mean, if I wanted to, I could tune into the Mozart level and get a Mozart-style symphony. I'd be accused of pastiche, mind you, by a number of prominent academics. I'd probably be accused of pastiche, but it's not pastiche because you're hearing a new piece, if you see what I mean. So you're not aping the past. You're not copying the past. That's what pastiche is, essentially. It's If you copy the past it's regarded as pastiche but this isn't pastiche it's new music and and that new music is available if you are open to it and if you if you open your heart and your mind to it you you can hear it you can write it down it's it's available and that takes me to the, the work of rosemary brown um but also just a quick little story um the English composer Arnold Bax, uh, Sir Arnold Bax, he was actually master of the Kings and then master of the Queen's music and, until 1953. Um, he was um, a very well-known composer of symphonies um, in the period between the two world wars. And he's a marvellous composer of romantic music. Look his music up too. I recommend it. Arnold Bax, B-A-X. Um, his symphonies are fantastic. His piano sonatas are marvellous as well. And he wrote lovely ballet music and symphonic poems too um but oh and one other nice side story about Bax is that he used to go on fairy hunting expeditions with wb yates uh the poet so um he he actually wrote um he was an author as well and in fact it's funny because he had a bit of a double life in ireland if you go to era and you mention arnold Bax, everyone will go who but if you mention Dermot O'Byrne, the writer, they'll go, oh, yeah, we know him. Because Dermot O'Byrne was Arnold Bax. It was just that Dermot O'Byrne was the writer side of him. Arnold Bax was the composer side. So in Ireland, he's, he's known as Dermot O'Byrne, the writer. And he was actually quite fond of writing about mystical experiences that, that he'd had. Um but the story I wanted to tell you is, is relates to Mozart or, or Mozartian things. Um, Bax was a composer of late romantic classical music. So very big, very opulent melodies, lush orchestration, um, very beautiful, but very big, powerful music. And um, sometime in 1937, he was on a bus in London and a friend of his who was another composer bumped into him and asked him what he was working on. And Bax sort of looked at him rather sheepishly and said that he was working on a new piano sonata. And his friend, the, the composer, said, oh, that's interesting. He said, uh, you've written four already. He said, is this your fifth? And Bax went, well, no. He said, I'm not going to call it number five. And his friend went, well, why not? He said, well, <clears throat> I can't explain it, he said. It's as if the work was written in the 1780s. He said, I, I can't work out what's going on. And anyway, eventually, the piece the piece is now known as Bax's Salzburg Sonata, because that's what he put on the title page. What he actually put on the title page is something like Salzburg Sonata written in Salzburg circa 1780. And that's what Bax wrote on the title page in 1937. 
And the work sounds for all the world like late Mozart. It doesn't sound like Bax at all. If you put his that sonata next to his fourth sonata that was written in 1932, that work is much more him. It's a big, grand, opulent, romantic piece. Whereas the Salzburg Sonata sounds su suspiciously like late Mozart. And Bax himself couldn't work out what on earth was going on. But all he knew was that this was what he was hearing. So he wrote it down. But he didn't put his, he didn't put his name to it. So when you uh, get complete recordings of the Bax Piano Sonatas, and I've got both of the complete sets, um, the Salzburg Sonata, unfortunately, and annoyingly, doesn't appear in the in the list of the Bax Sonatas. And it's very rarely performed because people go, oh, well, it's not Bax. It's, it's like weird 18th century pastiche. But of course, it's not. It was a brand new work. And really, my own view is that somebody should have the courage to call it Bax's Piano Sonata Number no. Five in B flat because that's exactly what it is. So it's where, where Stephen written in the style of yeah. So would you say that a lot of composers well, and musicians are linking to a quantum vibration? So when you talk about uh, Mozart and Beethoven. Uh, yeah. amazing pieces of music that was created yeah. and so could anybody tap into that vibration mediumistically who've got who vibrated that resonance who able to so is a universal would you say classical music is universal it's a separate quantum i say physical the energy yes so yes. people can tap into that at any point and create music it's to me i always think of it as being a little bit like tuning into your favorite radio station you know yeah if, if you want to tune into radio three or classic fm or heart radio dare i say it um you know you, you would turn the dial and tune to your favorite station so this this brings me to rosemary brown because um i i'm fascinated by her she was a medium who worked in London in the 1970s. And she um, said that she had the composer Franz Liszt as her main guide. And she also had um, other composers like Chopin, Schumann, Brahms and Beethoven come to her and dictate new pieces to her that they'd written on the other side, but the composers they said were worried this that you've got to i've got to put this in context i've just told you what was happening to classical music in the 1960s and that after world war 2 mm. by 1969 1970 there was uh, rosemary brown said that the composers were very worried that humanity was being cut off from the higher musical realms and that the music was no longer being heard. And what she wanted to prove, what the composers wanted to prove, this is what she said, was that they were still there, they were still alive, they were on the other side, they were working, and their music, crucially, was also still available if people wanted to hear it, if people wanted Brilliant. to see it. So, for example, um, 
Chopin would come and he would give her a new prelude. Chopin wrote uh, 24 preludes which were published and a few others that weren't. But Chopin, for example, would come and give her a new prelude. Or Schubert, for example, who was another uh, great friend of hers, would come and give her a new piano sonata or a new song or something like that. The point being, they was trying to say, look, we're still here. This music, which we are tuned into where we are, is still available to you if you want to have it, if you want to hear it. Music, to me, it's a simple matter. You hear music, you tune into it, you hear it, you write down what you hear. End. That's what it is. You use your learned compositional techniques then to expand what you're hearing and you are attentive to hear more. And you keep going until the piece ends and then you go to your next piece or whatever it is you're going to do. And the composers who were working with Rosemary Brown were showing her and the rest of us that they were still available for help if we desired help we could ask them and say you know can you help me with whatever it is a, a new piece that you wanted to write for example and there were there were people luminaries in the music world Leonard Bernstein is a good example Bernstein actually asked Rosemary Brown to take him when he was visiting um uh, London to conduct Verdi's Requiem in 1970 he actually asked Rosemary to take him copies of works that she'd received from the composers for him to play in his suite after the concert, because he was so interested in what she was doing. And you see, Bernstein himself, if you look at, at what Bernstein said in, in, in his life and who he was as a composer, he had difficulty with the 12-turn music and the lack of inspiration if you understand what i mean because it's more constructivist do you do you know what i mean it's it's stuff yeah. you construct it's not stuff you hear it's stuff you construct right now bernstein was having trouble with this because as a composer himself he was uh, think about west side story which is his most famous work you know bernstein is all about the melody he's all about beauty he's all about communicating with an audience right so he found the constructivist side of post-World War II music, very hard to cope with, obviously. And um, finding Rosemary Brown, who was saying that the composers were still available, was obviously very interesting to him. So she took him. This this was an interesting story because she didn't know, and th this goes to my favourite composer, Rachmaninoff, as well, so I always like this, this particular story. Um... Rosemary Brown, this was one morning in 1970. She'd been working, I think it was the previous night, on a new work by Rachmaninoff, who, who'd given her some new, a new piano work. And she was about to go out to the shops, very mundane, and Rachmaninoff appeared and said, uh, <clears throat> you're going to need this piece tonight. We need to work on it now. And she went, what do you mean I'm going to need it tonight? He said, trust me, you're going to need it tonight. We need to work on this piece now. So it's like, oh, God, I want to go shopping. All right, we'll sit down and work on this piece now. But anyway, whatever. Anyway, so she worked on the piece. And a few minutes after they finished, she got a phone call from her agent. And her agent said, 
Leonard Bernstein's in town. He wants to see you tonight. And would you take some of his pieces, some of the some of the pieces you've been working on to show him? And of course, the piece he was most interested in, it turned out, was the Rachmaninoff piece, which was exactly what Rachmaninoff had told her. <laughs> so that, that was an example of you couldn't make it up because, of course, Rosemary had had no idea that, you know, Bernstein was going to want to see her. And of course, Rachmaninoff did because he was seeing what was coming and he warned her about it beforehand. The other interesting story about Rosemary is uh, concerning the pianist John Lill. Now, John is also very mediumistic. He's a very famous pianist. He won the Tchaikovsky competition. So if you, you know about classical music, you know about the Tchaikovsky competition in Moscow. It's famous. And John Lill won the Tchaikovsky competition. And funnily enough, he will tell you uh, if you ask him, that he actually had a premonition that he was going to, and it wasn't ego on his part. He actually had a dream that he was actually given the first prize in in the competition, and that dream happened. It, it came true as as he saw it. So, anyway, um, John has had visitations from Beethoven for a long time, and um, one night. John was just in his flat, minding his own business. This is in about 1970 as well, 1969, 1970, not long after he'd won the competition. And he was just in his flat, minding his own business. And Beethoven turned up and physically in the room and said to him, you need to go to this address in London. Your help is needed. And John Lil went, What? And Beethoven repeated it. He said, you must go to this address tonight. Your help will be needed. Oh, OK, fine. So he wrote the address down, went to the house, had no idea what was going on, went in and it was a meeting. And the meeting was being addressed by Rosemary Brown. And she was talking about the composers and how they were worried about the future of music. And they wanted people to know that they were still around and their, you know, their music was still available if they wanted to. And there were journalists in the in the audience and the journalists, as journalists would, were scoffing at what Rosemary Brown was saying. And they were being a bit rude, you know, about what she was saying. And of course, John Lill being well known as the recent winner of the Tchaikovsky competition is now in the audience. And of course he realized what Beethoven meant when he said, your help is going to be needed. So Be so he, John Lill stood up and very bravely revealed to all the people who were there, what had just happened that Beethoven had told him to come to the, the house to give his, to lend his support to Rosemary and, and what she was doing. Of course, poor John since then has had to enjoy years of orchestras having a go at him during rehearsals going, oh, have you seen Beethoven today? You, you know, or, you know, things like this. But John's not worried about that because he knows what he knows and he knows what he's seen. He knows the contact that he's had. He knows it, how real it is and so on. And I recommend Rosemary Brown's books. They're very, very good. She goes into, into her contact with the composers in quite a lot of detail. Uh, one of which was really remarkable. And it was a contact with a composer called Victor Ullman, who was murdered during the Holocaust. And it was a piece Ullman had written in Theresienstadt. 
and it was a piece that Ullman wanted to alter. And of course, she knew nothing about Ullman, or it's a different story, but it's another marvellous story of a contact with a composer that, of course, Rosemary knew nothing about beforehand. So amazing. But yes, it, it's essentially it's about levels and it's about what levels you tune into. Yeah. Chris, do you want to ask a question? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I just found it, first of all, I thought it was really refreshing at the beginning, Stephen, when you mentioned about how not separating things in life mm. because I, I think there's far too much separation in this world yeah. and you, you hear it all the time in the spiritual movement physical life spiritual life yeah. and our last guest on this podcast actually lewis he was talking about health and well-being mm. and even separating science just because there's poor science doesn't mean we should shut science off altogether Correct. so i'm yeah. so pleased that you brought that in everything playing yeah. that part it is it is yeah. all one it is. Um, but what I wanted to ask you is, because I know you you know a lot about duality um, and shadow work, which both many times Stephen sits in, in one of our groups. Yeah. And 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 the journey that one more thing I want to add before I forget is what got me into classical music, and I found this interesting, mm. is actually through the music in films first. Yes. So yeah. I found that so interesting with what you said. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm not really surprised. so. So that's what pulled me in. But my question is, do you feel the journey we've been on with classical music mirrors the journey of where we are as a collective and on the earth as yeah. going through that duality, then breaking away? Yes. Brilliant question. 100%. 100%. And I think one of the things that is most important here, and I want to emphasise this, is that we must not neglect the dark side of human emotion, the dark side of what is happening. The, the worst thing we can do as a collective is shove our heads in the sand and pretend that none of this is happening, because it Absolutely. is. And one of the things the composers of the expressionist movement particularly were very, very good at were shining a light on the darker areas of the human psyche and showing you what was there. And in a very strange way, inviting you to give it unconditional love, which is very hard to do because I'll give you an example of two operas by the uh, pupil of, of Schoenberg, Alban Berg. Berg wrote two operas. Uh, and actually, the, the opera, one of the operas is actually very relevant to today. Well, they both are, but in different, in different senses. The, the first opera that Berg wrote was called Wozzeck. And it concerns uh, a rather dim soldier who in the course of the opera is having medical experiments performed on him by a very nasty doctor. Now, interestingly, this story, original play, uh, was written in the early or mid-19th century, which is very strange when you consider that the actual kinds of experiments that were done and that are depicted in the opera reappeared in certain camps in the 1930s and 1940s. It happened again. 
But the whole point of the Vatsek story is that Vatsek is, is a rather dim soldier who is having some very nasty medical experiments performed on him by a very nasty psychopathic doctor. And what the doctor does or winds up doing is he winds up um, aggravating the, shall we say, nasty and jealous side of Vatsek's nature. And in that way, he essentially winds him up. If you watch the, the story, he essentially winds him up like a clockwork toy until eventually he uh, Vatsek murders his girlfriend at, at the end of the opera and then drowns himself. Going The opera ends with the Vatsek drowning himself, walking into the lake, trying to find the knife he's just murdered his girlfriend with. And the the shocking thing at the end is that the girlfriend's been murdered. Votsek has committed suicide, essentially. And the little boy that they had is left playing Ring a Ring of Roses outside his house as the opera ends. And it's an incredibly shocking ending to, yeah. you know, to, to the work. But what Berg does, and this is very clever, is he gets you to feel empathy and sympathy for Votsek himself. Because you look at his story, this poor guy who has no idea what's being done to him, absolutely no idea at all. The, this guy who's doing the experiments on him, who is an absolute psycho, you you realize, oh, that you know, this the poor human being. You understand what I mean? You're starting to feel real empathy for sympathy for this guy. And you're thinking, this is, you know, these medical experiments that are being done on me, this is outrageous. You know, you understand what I mean? Nobody should have this done to them. Nobody should have these horrible experiments done to them. Poor guy. We really want to help him out. You see what I mean? Yeah. And um, the second opera that he wrote, Lulu, in 1935-36, which he never lived to finish, unfortunately, Um and that was because he <laughs> the, uh, Berg apparently died at uh, the age of 50. Uh, he died at the age of 50 of a, 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 an insect bite, which became infected. But one of the problems he had throughout his life was that he was constant. He was a hypochondriac and he was constantly taking one pharmaceutical drug after another to try and alleviate his problems. And of course, the, the drugs have side effects, which then have side with, and the drugs you take for them also have side effects of side effects. Do you see what I mean? So poor Berg's yeah. health just basically went into the toilet because of the, the drugs he was taking, you know, for his um, imagined ills. But the second opera that he wrote also looks uh, at, a, at this time, it looks at the figure of woman in inverted commas. It, the opera's called Lulu. And it's the idea of woman as destroyer, um, the, the the second opera. And it, it Lulu herself is an amoral person who goes through life causing absolute murder and mayhem around her and not caring about any of the people that she lives with or, or, or is involved with. But the paradox is that she may not care about all the people around her, but they all love her. So you see what I mean? It, it, it's it's mm. a it's a and it's again it's an, a very interesting story in the sense that you wind up at the end of the opera 
Well, she's murdered by Jack the Ripper, but I won't go into it. Um, <clears throat> it's a very complicated story. Yeah. How come Jack the Ripper ends up in 1930s Berlin? I have no idea. But anyway, that's another story entirely. But the point of it is you wind up feeling empathy and sympathy for the character. Okay, Stephen, I just want to ask you as we come into the end of the podcast about yeah. something that we discussed in Circle when we were together mm -hmm. in the Circle about the hurts, the the change of frequencies that are happening in yeah. the music industry. And you talked about that yeah. quite in depth. Yeah. And, it, and it would be interesting to share that particular uh, of the movement trying to move. Is it the 432? Have I got that right yes. or wrong? This, this, is a very, this is a very deep subject and actually would need another podcast to talk about properly. <laughs> Um, I, I'm serious because it, it's it's very uh, involved. Uh, essentially, the idea is that ancient temples and um, so, for example, the Pantheon in Rome, the Parthenon in Athens, St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, um, most of the major cathedrals that were built in the Gothic age um, and slightly later were all built with this uh, acoustic idea of an attuning, an, an ideal attuning to the A pitch of 432 cycles per second. Now that is uh, also related to the orbit of the planet Venus around the Earth, which forms, if you look at it, a five-pointed star um, in terms of the way its orbit looks when you when you put it all together. Um, the researcher Richard Merrick's written a very good book called The Venus Blueprint, which I recommend you read. Um, I recommend everyone read that. It, it's a very, very fine exposure of these ideas the idea being that when music is played at that pitch and when you combine it with the use of certain kinds of plant it opens you to direct contact with the source and therefore it will be a very good beneficial thing for composers to do you know um but also it, it at least partially explains why when you hear music in those kind of acoustics, it has such an amazingly uplifting effect on the audience. Um, and we're back to what I was talking about earlier on in terms of this study that's recently been done of um, the way in which classical music played at the right frequencies can affect the heart rate and the breathing rate of, of people in the audience. This is only a beginning to a study of a vast, really vast subject. At the moment, as things stand at the moment, the A pitch that um, orchestras are tuned to and the A pitch that is used as the standard for all music is 440 cycles per second. So it's slightly out of tune compared to where it's supposed to be. Now, a lot of original instruments ensembles that play music from the classical era, and here I am talking, yes, 1750 to 1820, um, they play music which is tuned 
close to 432 quite often, but not actually 432. You often find that, uh, say, for example, that um, version of the Beethoven Moonlight Sonata that I sent you, that is played uh, with the piano, the forte piano that it's played on, tuned to an A pitch of 430 cycles per second. It's very close to 432, but it's not actually 432. So, and you find when you look at the history that the A pitch has changed a lot. I mean, in the Baroque era, it was 415 cycles per second, the A pitch. In the classical era, it varied basically from city to city. I mean, if you went to Vienna, it was, say, 435. If you went to Berlin, it was 428. Do you see what I mean? They, they were tuning to different pitches. So there's been no... There's a misnomer sometimes when you get people jumping up and down, as I've heard people do, and going, oh, in the classical era, everyone was playing to A432. No, they weren't. And in fact, nobody, as far as I know, has been has yet been playing music tuned to the A pitch that would seem to be the, the background A pitch for these ancient temples that, that go way back in history. And it would be a very interesting thing, I think, to have orchestras retune to that frequency, to 432, and, and see what happens to audiences. And I, I suspect that it would have an exceptionally uplifting effect, which was what the ancients intended, I think, when they designed the temples the way that they did. Yeah, extremely, extremely interesting. And it's been... Well, it's a vast absolute... subject, Stephen. It, it, it is. It, we'd be here for another two hours. Well, There's think, got to be a part two, I think, to this, definitely. Yeah, I think. definitely. Well, I think well, we should... Yeah, because I didn't, I didn't really finish what I was talking about in terms of the shadow work, which is amazingly important. And we really must not neglect it. And that goes into also the kinds of modern music i haven't actually been able to expand on what modern music actually is and how it works yet and 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 that's a very important thing as well which which will need more speech on at another time yeah it's been a fantastic talk Stephen. i'm sure a lot of um, our listeners will find it very very interesting and we're expanding on things quite rightly that need time to be explained yeah. they need that space yeah. And so I would love to do, well, we'll do part two, part three, part four, as many as it takes. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I look forward um, to that. And I'm sure everybody listening will look forward to it. So I want to okay. thank you so much for giving your time today. You're welcome. It's, it's so appreciated. And maybe our next one we could actually do, because you visit us a lot, maybe we could do it yeah. all in person. Why all not? Together. That sounds yeah. great. I'd love that. Um, but but um, I've written down so many names and the books yeah. as as you've spoken that I'll be looking yeah. up and I'm sure many who are listening as well. So just want to thank you so much again. Thanks You're to welcome. everyone who's who's listening along and following this podcast. We want to send you lots of love and please Indeed. comment and give your opinions below or perhaps you have knowledge on what we spoke about. Uh, this yeah. is all collective talks. We welcome everybody to join in. And so we speak again soon want to say bye bye to everyone lots of love bye, bye. lots of love